Hello, and welcome to The Lancet Voice. It's March 2022. I'm Gavin Cleaver, and I'm joined as ever by my co-host, Jessamy Baganel. Conflict in Ukraine has captured the world's attention over the last few weeks, and every day we're confronted with images coming out of Ukraine of suffering and horror. As I'm recording this introduction, on March 21st, 10 million people have fled their homes, with 3.5 million crossing the border into neighbouring countries. 90% of those fleeing are women and children. The humanitarian and health impact of the conflict and of this vast displacement will be felt for generations. And to discuss what these impacts might be, Jessamy and I are very pleased to be joined by Oksana Pizhik, a Ukrainian-Canadian who works in UCL's School of Pharmacy here in London. This interview was recorded several days ago, so any data discussed in the interview may be slightly out of date, given such a fast-moving situation. Oksana, thanks so much for joining us today. Uh, we, it's really, it's really valuable to to have you and your voice on the podcast. We can just kick off, I guess, by you telling us a little bit about your kind of role at UCL and your background. And of course, you've been such a prominent voice during the COVID pandemic for the last two years as well. But uh, we're here today to talk about Ukraine. But perhaps you know, tell us kind of the roller coaster you've been on for the last few years. Uh, yes, of course. So. I am the global engagement lead at uh, UCL School of Pharmacy. I'm also a global health lecturer there. Uh, and in uh, 2015, I launched the Global Citizenship Program with a focus on outbreaks. Uh, and then that, as uh, over the past two years, has kept me very busy with the COVID-19 uh, response. Uh, but in general, I also lead on the global health curriculum development from a, a, a teaching perspective at UCL School of Pharmacy. I'm a pharmacist myself. Um, I sit on the uh, board of trustees for the Commonwealth uh, Pharmacists Association, and I advise them on, on wider global health issues. Uh, and given the, the course of events over the last three years, I found myself uh, more and more bringing these topics to wider general audience to help them understand how our uh, individual impacts add up to a, a wider um, global health response, particularly with other issues, including climate change. So obviously we're here to talk about the conflict in, in Ukraine. So, uh, you know, how, how are you feeling? Well, I have a, I'm Ukrainian Canadian. So this, this really, uh, hits home for me. I have, uh, both, uh, family and friends, uh, in Ukraine. Um, they have, uh, remained in Ukraine, but moved towards, uh, Lviv, which is in the Western part of the country, mostly because they want to uh, contribute to, um, the response. So, uh, they are also, participating in uh, running the, the medical facilities there, et cetera, and all the need, uh, which is so great on the ground at the moment. It's been, it's difficult to put it into words, really. Uh, I'd say it's sort of the fight or flight response, even though I'm here, I'm in London, I'm in safety, but uh, also feeling helpless to about the situation, watching it unfold. Uh, yeah, it's been really difficult, but I'm just so deeply proud of the heroism and, and bravery shown uh, by the Ukrainian people. And uh, I'm trying not to, uh, well, to pour that um, anger and, and, and outrage and, and, and despair into to productivity and liaising with um, my the communities here in terms of rallying funds and, and getting um, 
uh, journalists to connect with people on the ground so that it's being a report that the situation about how it's impacting the local populations and all across the country is being covered. I think that's really important with the issue of misinformation and, and particularly um, where censorship has become so extreme under the Russian regime. So we, we really do need to try and get those voices amplified as much as possible uh, and, and just volunteering as much as possible to, to, to give uh, aid um, and ensuring that there are safe uh, humanitarian corridors for WHO and UN staff to deliver um, supplies, medicines, everything. And, and so I think despite having a, uh, I, as, as many people uh, of Ukrainian heritage or not, it's, it's been such a anxious time with really a, a leader who is willing to include a nuclear threat. I think, I think most are watching in horror uh, at everything that's unfolding. Do you think this is just going to get worse? And are you aware of the sort of the types of, of health interventions that are, are trying to be put in place for some of these hospitals in Ukraine in terms of moving patients out? We hear, we hear stories of people, you know, moving children and patients, trying to get them out and not necessarily being able to. Do you, can you provide us some information on that? Well, the, the ceasefire has not been respected and, and the humanitarian corridors have also um, not lived up to that promise. Uh, some of these areas were, um, there were, there were mines on these paths um, and, and civilians once again were targeted. But, but even more crucially, uh, these humanitarian corridors then led into Belarus, which uh, has been a, a sort of proxy state for Russia and has also um, sent troops over or into Russia. And so, again, these are not necess- safe given the uh, the level of anti-Ukrainian propaganda that has been um, for the last uh, 20 plus years uh, been fed to the population. So, so th- those are not on the terms of where the civilians will feel safe. Uh, you don't want to be running into the hands of the, the, the people who are, uh, responsible for, for bombing and killing your, uh, family, friends, and relatives. So that, in, in that sense, it wasn't, uh, arranged in such a, such a way that I think led to uh, true humanitarian relief. Uh, a because it, it was dangerous and people lost their lives in in, in making those uh, exits, uh, so that uh, good faith was not held. But also where those exit leads are problematic as well and could lead to women being trafficked uh, and and other problems as well. So so those are some some very serious issues as well. Uh, within Ukraine itself, there's been a huge influx uh, of people fleeing from the, the most heavy shelling where the, the, the long range missiles and cluster bombs, uh, which are not supposed to be used in conflict. So again, that's in breach of international humanitarian laws uh, have caused 6.7 million people to be internally displaced uh, within Ukraine. 
And that is also overwhelming health facilities in the West. Now, the WHO is uh, supplying, is trying to assist uh, bringing in health workers, but without those safe passages to bring in health supplies, it means that there are areas where, uh, again, strategically, the military have bombed electricity supplies. So there are some areas without electricity, without access to water, without access to medicines. And it, it's been very difficult to, to help um, th- these countries that are in the most severe bombardment in the East. Um in addition to that, the WHO is also um, supporting neighboring countries to ensure that uh, they are uh, receiving support for a, a massive influx. Poland being uh, one of the countries that has received uh, the highest uh, number of, of immigrants. Uh, and that's uh, they also had uh, no refugee centers to begin with. So we're talking about you know, Google offices being transformed, people opening up their homes. Now, there is a many people who will have family in Poland. So uh, in in that respect, uh, people are opening up their own homes, but they're, but that's still um, not really at the scale. When there's 1.3 million uh, refugees that Poland has received, it's it's really a a struggle, but they're being very creative with it. um, And they're being a, a very swift uh, in their in their response, so uh, for, from that perspective, again, it, it, it's easier uh, for Ukrainians to to relocate. I think in countries that have already pre existing relations, um, and, and they are in terms of health needs, because already countries like Poland don't have a. Um, excess health workforce. They're in short supply, like in many other countries uh, around the world. So uh, they have had to transport, uh, kind of make makeshift hospitals in national stadiums in, in Warsaw. Um, they've had to create mobile trains that are transporting people around the country that are also makeshift hospitals um, for, for the most sick. Uh, and, and we also saw that um, there have been 20 children flown in from Ukraine into uh, the UK to because they they have um, severe cancer, so there there has been uh, you know health interventions on on that response, but it's all been very quick and in some instances in countries without much experience of this at all. Yeah, given the scale of it, there'll need to be some long term structures put in place, especially in Poland. You would think. Of course. And so with Poland, uh, again, as I said, they don't have the, the, the same experience in terms of being able to cope with such a rapid influx. This is the, the largest refugee crisis since the Second World War uh, in 1945. Uh, so there are going to be long-term measures that uh, are necessary, and, and that will include uh, many interventions around mental health. People have fled their homes uh, you know, with with maybe just a bag, children have crossed borders by themselves. So, one of the long term needs will certainly be around supporting uh, the mental scars of of conflict, and that will include uh, support for trauma uh, and, and counseling and and continuation of care. Uh, specifically for women and children, because these are mostly the refugees that we see are crossing. Uh, so a focus on sexual and reproductive health, also ensuring that uh, many children who will have not had their uh, routine immunizations 
delivered. So all of that following up with patients, screening patients, um, ensuring that they have access to vaccines, all of that will um, be required uh, from from, from, uh, not just Poland, but all of the communities that welcome in Ukrainians. And that process is obviously kind of ramping up now and is is going to have to continue ramping to to get to the kind of scale and level where we're able to deal with those interventions. Do you feel that from a kind of global point of view, there's the same focus and solidarity on trying to action some of those strengthening of the health systems surrounding Ukraine and, and, you know, directly within Ukraine in terms of health? as there is, say, of, you know, talking about sanctions and and business assets and freezing things? Or do you think that the focus needs to to change a bit and we need to talk more about this? I feel like we need to talk more about it. Well, I think we need to be doing everything that we can. So you know, there, there's going to be the, the short, medium and long term aspects towards uh, providing support. I mean, sanctions are uh, one way of not only trying to put additional pressure for um, Putin to to stop this war, um, but also to galvanize the Russian population because it will now uh, impact their daily lives. A vast uh, number of corporations have closed their doors. Um, we have the energy problem, which is uh, going to cause a, a significant squeeze on, on uh, European populations, including Germany most significantly. But it is in the long term also a view towards moving for green energy, which we need to be doing anyhow. Uh, in the short term, however, I don't think we're able to do that so quickly. In terms of the, the again, the sanctions, it was kind of a, I would say, a snowball effect. So once some of the, the really major companies spoke out on the issue and took a stance to stand with Ukraine, condemning the Russian invasion in the strongest possible terms, it became untenable, really, for any other uh, company to, to stay neutral on it. Um, and, uh, you know, that pressure it had a domino effect. Um, and I think that, uh, however, I don't see this being the, the ultimate tool to uh, end the war because I don't think that uh, Putin is particularly concerned uh, with the health and well-being of his own population based on the uh, imprisonment of uh, protesters, of the the very uh, severe censorship laws that have come into place, um, the fact that even children have been imprisoned for carrying peace signs. I, I don't think that, uh, I think he's prepared to let his own population suffer for, for him to win this war. And the, and, and the fact that so many people are fleeing Russia as well. Yes, yeah. And uh, so I think th- that makes it much more difficult to use as an effective tool uh, in terms of sanctions to, to prevent um, the war from escalating. Uh, again, this is there, it's historic in, in so many ways. Uh, the attack on the nuclear power plant and, and the threat of that being, um, it is, it was contained, but had it been more severe, that health catastrophe would have been six times larger than that of Chernobyl. Uh, so we do, we are, this conflict does affect everyone because not only does it normalize um, leaders trying to uh, threaten use of nuclear weapons, 
Uh, it's also even utilizing strategies, including uh, nuclear power plants, as ways to uh, seize seize land and, and, and other countries. So this has, un- in that as in, in that perspective, the knock on consequences of that are are, are not to be minimized. It, it is as I would say scary for for world leaders, but I think at this stage, despite the the, the symbol of solidarity, I fear it will um, just embolden Putin to crack down further on on the invasion using uh, more uh, similar tactics to those used in Syria. What do you think about the kind of solidarity across European nations shown towards Ukrainian refugees so far? Of course, we've seen those scenes, for example, in uh, German train stations of people just showing up to uh, to welcome whoever in, uh, from from the Ukraine into their homes. Uh, I think, in a way, isn't it? It's been heartening, but there's a danger, isn't there, that these things can be quite short term, whereas actually refugees need long term support. Yeah, and and also it's not been equal everywhere. So there have been some countries that have been have you know taken their own initiative to, to show up with signs and, and help in any way they can. Whereas if we compare the UK response, um, they have had 760 visa approvals only in two weeks, which, which is quite frankly disgraceful. Poland has taken over 1.2 million refugees. Hungary has taken 190,000. Germany has taken over 50,000. So really, the UK is lagging far behind. Ireland has waived all visa requirements similar to Canada. Uh, so th- I think it's also to, uh, important to point out that not everyone has had the, the same level of support. But you are, uh, you know, a hundred percent right to say that there is uh, in the immediate crisis. Uh, while we, you know, the, the tension of the world is uh, on the issue, uh, people stepping up to support. But the long-term aspect of helping people to rebuild their lives, it's almost a second crisis for the refugee themselves. Uh, they, they need to be able to secure an income, find a place to live. Um, and and that's, these are huge barriers to overcome. And particularly, uh, you know, being able to when they are uh, families that are, are separated uh, from their partners and, and young children and, uh, you know, their education while also dealing with uh, not knowing when they'll be able to return to their homes. Because many of the, the people have fleed, you know, they, they want to be able to return to, to their lives in Ukraine. And not just not knowing when and how... Uh, this will how long this will carry on for the the, the mental burden emotional burden of that uh, is incredibly challenging as well but in the meantime we do need to ensure that there are appropriate programs that have the appropriate funding to help uh refugees from from all over the world uh you know, we're talking about ukraine now but these types of programs are usually um not funded well enough uh and are require expansion to ensure that uh, we are uh, really helping to build the most integrated and, and diverse uh, populations. And, and that comes as a strength. You know, the Ukrainian diaspora all over the world has also helped to galvanize and, and, and bring lobby to ensure that, uh, you know, these sanctions come through. And that that is a result of people who have uh, from previous conflicts, my parents being, um, you know, again, they, they fled the USSR under communist regime. And in Canada, there's a huge diaspora population and, and the communities really rally around each other. But it also shows that you can have 
you know, the, the power of those communities to act in, in crisis. But it's uh, we need everyone to be stepping up to that as well. There's obviously going to be lots of sort of consequences of this. And maybe you've touched on it already, um, talking about the sort of nuclear aspect. But I mean, what are some of your biggest concerns? Well, I think it sets precedent that, you know, the international community will not act when there is an aggressor. As you say, there is no... Um, there isn't a justification for uh, the invasion that is valid, and that has been widely condemned by the United Nations. I'm, I believe 141 votes supporting uh, Ukraine and dismissing uh, the the Russian claims. So there is globally, uh, I think, a strong condemnation of any country to interfere with the right of another country's self-determination. It is really only up to Ukrainians to decide uh, whether they are uh, looking for a future with a free press, uh, with democracy, with free elections. Uh, you know, I was actually in Kyiv when uh, Poroshenko and Zelensky were uh, <laughs> up against each other. And at that point, uh, I have to say, I thought... What will the future of our country look like in the hands of a former comedian turned president? Uh, so I, I was dismayed, but I have to eat my words now because uh, President Zelensky has really emerged as a as a, a not only brave but a, a a man of integrity and standing amongst his people. And I think contrasting that leadership against um, seeing Putin and his ridiculous long table. Um, and his uh, flight attendants flocked around him in a, a sham press conferences. You can just see the style of leadership being from um, Zelensky rallying, uh, uniting people together without this uh, sense of a hierarchy to the most strict, strictest sense of command chain hierarchy based uh, society. And I think that's why the, the uh, Russian sh soldiers are also losing a lot of morale because, you know, they're, they're, invading a country that doesn't want to be um, taken over uh, and fall under the Iron Curtain again. So people from all over the world have actually come back to, to sort of defend the right uh, of Ukraine to exist. As a Ukrainian myself, uh, Putin's essay published in uh, July uh, 2021 about uh, really claiming Ukraine as a... As a uh, Bolshevik invention was very extremely dehumanizing because it diminishes my uh, identity and heritage. Uh, and I think that is why there is such, despite it being a David versus Goliath story, uh, the, the resistance is so strong because it, it's for something much greater at stake. And that, and that is that uh, it really, you cannot, it is up to the people of a country to decide uh, their their own future. And I, I think that has rung so much with the, the international community in terms of what is right and what is wrong. Uh, certainly, I agree that, you know, we, we should be looking at all conflicts um, in similar light uh, to to ensure that uh, we have really, uh, you know, it's a requirement for, for any type of long lasting peace is to, to respect these rules. And that there, the West has not always been on the right side in terms of that, and I think that that hypocrisy does need to be addressed. But I, I don't think this is just about um, you know Europe. Europe had two world wars, and those scars are still within our generation. So I think the emotive response of a war in Europe is also due to the the reverberation of 
all of the experiences that have uh, through generations been passed on in uh, in continental Europe as well as in the UK. The impact of that, I don't think we should underestimate. And I think that's also partly why we saw such a strong response. And post the war, we ha- there was supposed to be a new world order uh, with, with NATO and the United Nations and the EU specifically designed so that, you know, there never again would we see this type of conflict and destruction on European soil. But that's only lasted around 75 years. Uh, and now we see that uh, there is once again, a war in Europe. And so I, I think that has been deeply disturbing for, for people uh, of non-Ukrainian descent uh, within Europe who still have the tragedies of uh, the, the previous uh, world wars, including, you know, Holocaust survivors and everything else like within their families. But I also agree that we, we need to be, uh, this is a, perhaps a lesson to be learned. If we can prevent, you know, Ukraine to, to be uh, completely destroyed, for it to be, follow the same ex- tragedy of what has happened in Syria. I think that's why there's such a galvanization to, to act because there is so much suffering already and we don't, you know, anything to, to stop it from being, to adding to that. But we do need to ensure that welcoming all of those people from war-torn nations. Uh, And and there's no place in the world for double standards. Looking for the next couple of weeks, what are some of the kind of issues you're hoping to galvanize support for? You know, what's most important for you going forward? Well, I think we absolutely need to ensure that there is... um, Facilities, so the hospitals, the schools are safe, um, that there need to be uh, some consequences to the fact that 34 hospitals have been attacked uh, and that there is some uh, compliance with the inter- international humanitarian laws. So we need to ensure that these humanitarian corridors are respected so that supplies, medicines, there is oxygen shortage. Um, there are, uh, as well as HIV medication shortages reported by the WHO. All of these need to ensure that uh, safe access to, to, the, to the areas of most need within Ukraine. I'd say that is what uh, people need to be focused on in the short term, uh, immediately because of just the, the severity of these medical shortages, uh, and ensuring that there, that, uh, health workers are not targeted. Uh, so we need to galvanize the community to, to, to put an end to this. Uh, and I don't think that, uh, there is a particularly simple way, but if, if we allow, uh, the, the further assault on Ukrainians to continue without respect for civilian life. Uh, I don't think we will be, it, it will turn into a prolonged conflict. And if eventually Ukraine does fall within the Iron Curtain, what you have left is the same problem of Putin with nuclear weapons even closer to the doorstep of Europe pointing west. That problem doesn't disappear. There have been talks about trying to supply more uh, military equipment, but there's been a lot of back and forth and indecision. And every moment, every second that that continues, Putin gets the upper hand in the conflict. But ultimately, kicking the can down the road doesn't solve the problem of Putin.
that's it for this episode of the lancet voice we're publishing a lot of content on the conflict in ukraine which you can find by going to our website thelancet.com where you'll see it on the home page if you'd like to join the conversation on twitter you can follow Jessamy and i on our twitter handles at Jessamy bagginal and at gavin cleaver thanks for listening and we'll see you again soon